Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you, Paul. In the, uh, in the big story of the Bible, the kind of biblical narrative, the grand narrative, there are a, a number of main characters, key figures, important individuals that uh, would quickly come to mind if we were to play a kind of who's who of Scripture. A-listers, if, if you like. Those people that, that most of us would uh, name reasonably easily and, and, and quite quickly. For example, well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's actually play the who's who of Scripture, okay? So uh, what I want you to do, apart from God and Jesus, okay? So apart from God and Jesus, I want you to think of one key Bible character, okay? Do it for a second. Everybody got one? Okay, when I say their name, I want you to put your hand up and then keep your hand up, okay? So, many people thought Abraham. Keep your hand up, right? Quite a few. Moses. Oh. David. Oh. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Nobody, right? Paul. Right, quite a few more. Peter. Wow, okay. Hands down. I'm not going to go around and see whoever other people thought. Right, let's, let's restrict the game, okay? Let's restrict the game to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, the book of beginnings. And so I reckon a lot of people would name, right, okay, so what I want you to do is think of somebody, a key character from the book of Genesis, but not Abraham, okay? Has everybody got one from Genesis? Okay, so hands up, Adam or Eve. Okay, Sarah, Noah, Oh, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph. Wow, right, okay. Well, there's another key character who appears in the first book of the Bible, albeit very briefly, who is often missed. And I wonder if anybody thought of him. Now, if it wasn't for the book that we are working our way through here at Windsor on Sunday nights, the book of Hebrews, I doubt this character would ever get mentioned in a game of who's who of Scripture. And even though he is mentioned a lot in Hebrews, eight times to be exact, I still think most people, and self-included, probably wouldn't name him in a list of core characters you absolutely need to know about. And yet it could be argued that this person, this individual, is greater than Abraham. Now that's a huge statement to make. That's an astonishing claim. But the reason I say that is because it seems to be what the writer of Hebrews actually suggests. So who am I referring to? Melchizedek. So let's stick with the game. Who's who? What can anyone tell me about Melchizedek? Let's, let's, let's start with like this one. How many books of the Bible does Melchizedek appear in? Three. Three, which are? Psalms. Hebrews, obviously, no clue. You have no prizes for that one. What's the other one? Genesis, right, okay. And as I say, his name appears 10 times, eight times in Hebrews, once in Genesis, once in the Psalms. Melchizedek is often described as a mysterious figure and one of the most intriguing Bible characters the Bible says almost nothing about. And yet it seems, and here's the point, 
it seems that if we really want to understand who Jesus is more fully, then Melchizedek is a name we need to know better. And I say that based on the chapter that we have arrived, and many of you have been tracking this journey with us, but I say that based on the chapter that we've arrived at in our journey through Hebrews, which is chapter 7. Now, it's not the first time when we get to chapter 7 that Melchizedek has been mentioned. He's mentioned in chapter 5, and he is the last word in chapter 6. But in chapter 7, his profile and significance gets taken to a whole other level. So please, can you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7? It's page 1,205 in the Red Pew Bibles. And although this is often seen and described as dense biblical material, which is all a bit technical, my hope and prayer tonight is that we can do what the whole aim of this series is to do, and that is to elevate Jesus. That is my desire tonight, so that we would know Jesus better, so that we would see Jesus clearer. You see, right from the outset of this letter, the writer has been urging his readers to do this. This comes in the first verse of chapter 3, those of, us, those of you who have been following this. Here's what the writer wants his readers and all subsequent readers, first readers and all subsequent readers to do. Consider Jesus. Or in another translation, I want you to think carefully about Jesus. And later on, as we all know, Hebrews chapter 12, what does the writer tell us we should do with our eyes? Do what? Fix our eyes it's all about Jesus. And therefore, as he now talks about Melchizedek, let's not forget that he does so in order that we can, and his first readers can better appreciate Jesus. We need to think about Melchizedek. We absolutely do, but we must ultimately focus on Christ. And if by the end of this evening you have done, if by the end of tonight you have considered Jesus, just a little bit more, or reconsidered Jesus afresh, then this will have been a good night. So please stand with me for the public reading of God's Word. And we're going to take time to read it through. Then this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just, how, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. You still with me? <laughs> this gets complicated. If perfection 
could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood has changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak, it was useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Grab a seat. So the first thing that we, I'm going to try to walk us through this, this chapter. But the first thing we discover about Melchizedek is that he was a king and a priest. Now that's verse one, and that's exceptional. It's really important that we get this. That is exceptional because it immediately sets him apart from every other priest in, or king in, in Israel ever. No others were both. No priest in the Old Testament could lawfully act as a king, and no king in the Old Testament could lawfully act as a priest. Now I say lawfully because the odd king tried to act like a priest and ended up in deep trouble. Can anybody tell me one king who tried to act like a priest and ended up getting it in the neck from God? Saul, 1 Samuel 13, exactly. Well, Melchizedek was uniquely both. He was a king of Salem and he was a priest, and again, of the most high God. Wasn't even an Israelite. And the only other person in Scripture who is identified as both a priest and king is who? Jesus, although Jesus actually has a triple identity. What's Jesus' triple identity? Prophet, priest, and king. Well, Melchizedek was a king, so was Jesus. Or to quote Kanye West at the moment, Jesus is king. I'd love, I kind of really want to go off on a digress and talk about what is going on with Kanye West and that new album that I referred to a number of weeks ago whenever we had the baptismal service, Jesus is king. But I, yeah, we'll not go there. But Jesus is king. And Melchizedek was a priest. Jesus is a priest. Well, the writer then, and this is still verse one, 
He then recalls Melchizedek's dramatic and decisive encounter with Abram, which is recorded, first recorded back in Genesis 14, where he meets Abraham, or Abram as he was then, on his way back from a major military victory. He serves him bread and wine, and then he blesses him. And Abraham responds by giving him a tenth of all his spoils of war, all his plunder. Now, we kind of need to hold those thoughts for a moment because then in quickfire succession, the writer gives us three other key insights into this fascinating character. So we get the meaning of his name, the meaning of his title, and the unprecedented nature of his rule. So first of all, what does Melchizedek mean? What does it say? What does it mean? I want to keep you involved with this night as much as possible. What does it mean, according to the writer? King of righteousness. His title, King of Salem, what does that mean? King of peace. And then thirdly, in terms of the unparalleled nature of his role in his priesthood, he appears to have been divinely ordained or appointed. He wasn't a priest because his dad was a priest, which tended to be the way it worked. In fact, we're given no clue as to his family ancestry. If Melchizedek went on an episode of Who Do You Think You Are, he'd be stuffed. He would have no joy in tracing his family. It would be the shortest episode ever. And so to quote the writer, he is without beginning of days and end of life. Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, you can get sidetracked at this point. And you start thinking, well, was Melchizedek immortal? Was he even real? Was he a human? And people go off in all kinds of places. And I'm not going to do it. The issue at stake here is the eternal nature of his priesthood, not his personhood. And so Melchizedek is a king. So is Jesus. Melchizedek is a priest. So is Jesus. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness and a king of priest. So is Jesus. And Melchizedek is a priest forever. So is Jesus. Well, back to the plunder, verse 4. Abraham clearly feels a sense of obligation that God, that he should, sorry, obligation to God that he should give this priest a tenth of what he had taken from a number of kings that he had had a victory over. Four was the number of kings he had had a victory over. So this was a sizable gift he was given. And so having been blessed by Melchizedek, Abraham gives him 10% of everything. And then notice verse 7, because this is a shocker. Mightn't be to us, I know that. But to the first readers of this letter, this would have hit home hard. Because it says, and without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Which seems to imply, or actually explicitly state, that Melchizedek is greater than Abram. The great patriarch. And so in biblical top trumps, and there is such a thing, if you have the Melchizedek card, you're on a winner. He trumps Abram. One of many people earlier, whenever I said key characters in Scripture, even key characters in Genesis, how many people thought of Melchizedek? Now the writer isn't wanting his readers to get carried away with this guy. But he does want us to see that he was something else. 
He was great in order to help us see that whenever he refers to Jesus as our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, we'll realize that Jesus is even greater still. And so we will elevate Jesus. Which remember, right throughout this book, right throughout this epistle, is what the writer is at pains to do. He wants to emphasize the supremacy of Jesus. And so in the first chapter, he says Jesus is greater than, who was Jesus greater than in the first chapter? Greater than the what? Angels. Who else has the writer been saying Jesus is greater than? Chapter 3, he is greater than who? One of those key Old Testament characters we named earlier. Greater than who? Moses. In chapter 4, he seems to indicate that he's greater than Joshua. And here, in verse 11 of chapter 7, he continues in this vein, not only helping his readers see Jesus as our great high priest, because that's what he is, our great high priest, he now says he is our perfect high priest, which is some claim. And again, there is a danger that we don't fully appreciate what's being said here because we are so far removed from this world and this worldview of the original recipients. You see, for them, the priesthood, that is the Levitical priesthood, was the backbone, in a sense, of Jewish society. It was a major feature of God's covenant with Israel. It defined the Jewish people because the priests were, as Paul said earlier, mediators between Israel and God. Without the priests, the people were in trouble. They were lost. They were spiritually bereft because priests represented the people before God and they represented God back to the people. So therefore, priests and the priesthood was critical, essential, but it was not and they were not perfect. And so the writer in verse 11 asks this question, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. And the point is, a new priest, a better priest, a perfect priest was needed, not from the order of Aaron or from the Levitical line, but one in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, a priest forever. A priest who didn't become one because his dad was one before him. Or to quote verse 16, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestors. He's nothing to do with his family tree. But here's the reason. Here's the basis. On the basis of the power of an indestructible life. See, all other priests lived and died. But Jesus lived and died and rose again. And therefore, he is a priest forever. He is a priest eternally. Therefore, a perfect priest. Therefore, our mediator, our go-between extraordinaire. The old system, the old priesthood needed to be, to quote verse 18, it needed to be set aside. Because it wasn't quite up to it. It made nothing perfect. It was weak. It was useless. It was unprofitable, depending on what translation you're looking at. But Jesus, via his life, death, and resurrection, end of verse 14, what is Je- or end of verse 19, what is Jesus? He is a better hope by which we draw near to God. And this morning, Jonathan was, was talking about hope as we looked at Ephesians 1 and 2. Jesus is a better hope by which we draw near to God to God. You see, to do that in the past, to get anywhere near God, and Paul has already alluded to this, you needed a priest. Now you've got Jesus. 
the perfect priest who is apart from and he's above every Levitical priest. He is the priest now who forgives sin and reconciles you to God like no other. He takes you into the very intimate presence of God. The curtain that used to separate you, the curtain into the Holy of Holies, that's gone. Access is no longer denied, no longer restricted. So in the old system, there was hope. Yes, there was some hope. But now, you have a better hope. A much and far better hope is theirs and it's ours. And in this section, look at verse 14. The writer tells us that Jesus descended from Judah, which is the tribe of David. And so then when you get to Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Jesus, we are told that the Messiah was a son of David. And in the Old Testament, it was, for, it was the tribe of Judah that produced the kings. And so again, this is just a reference to the fact that Jesus is king. And in addition, he is uniquely priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And just to kind of solidify this reality and just to make sure there's further clarity around this, the writer then makes the point that Jesus became a priest with an oath. No other priest did. Certainly not an oath from God. God never swore an oath to any other priest, but he did to Jesus. So to quote verse 21, which is to quote Psalm 110, the Lord was, has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Which as a result, and the writer makes this point, means that a better covenant is guaranteed. Not just a better hope, but a better covenant is guaranteed because of Jesus, which is a new covenant in his blood, as we often quote, around the Lord's table. The old covenant, that was good. It did what it was designed to do, but a far better one is guaranteed by Jesus, who is God's perfect priest and our perfect high priest, who became that sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world, who rose again, defeating sin, conquering death, destroying the devil's work. And so he is our high priest forever. He is our eternal mediator our eternal go-between, who transforms us from the inside out. He gives us a new heart and promises and guarantees life everlasting in the presence and the kingdom of God. Under the old covenant, temporary priests did what they could and what they were meant to do. But as verse 23 says, death presented them from continuing in office. They temporarily sorted people out. They made sacrifices to atone for the people's sins, but these had to be repeated time. These had to be done time and time again. But because Jesus lives forever, look at verse 23, because Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, his priesthood, his priesthood is permanent, it's not temporary. And as a result, and here we come to one of those verses. You remember nothing else. I recognize you probably won't. Remember nothing else. Remember verse 25. He is able, as a result of this, him being a permanent high priest, a perfect high priest, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Completely. Jesus has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. There's nothing missing. There's nothing partial about it. And so when we come to God through Jesus, who is our great and our perfect high priest, we are completely saved, we are totally saved, we are forever saved. His priesthood, the priesthood of Christ, trumps the previous one. It's superior in every way. And what he did for us 
makes peace with God possible. And the present reality and the outworking of this is astounding because Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Do you know, have you ever wondered what does Jesus live to do? Do you ever think about this? Jesus is alive. We believe it. But why? Why? What does he live for? Well, right now, before the Father, Jesus is personally, continually interceding for you. That's what, that was, that's what Jesus lives for, according to this. He's a priest forever. And so when you mess up, and when I mess up, and we do, because we still sin, well, there is Jesus, always interceding for us. Why? Because he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4. He understands the temptation that you face day in, day out. And so he is sitting before the Father, always living to intercede for you. And he's doing that five to eight, Sunday night, 10th of November, 2019. And he's going to be doing it in five minutes, in an hour, this time tomorrow. And you know, if that kind of doesn't stir your heart, if that doesn't do your heart a wee bit of good, then you're maybe, no, that's it, dead. And this chapter, this chapter come, as this chapter comes to an end, the, the writer then finishes by making the point, and again, this is one of these huge statements that you can easily miss. Jesus truly meets your need. Do, do you believe that? Jesus, tr- this is what he, the writer said, truly meets your need. Do you know our greatest need is to be reconciled to our creator? It's to rediscover the relationship that we were created for. It is to be forgiven. It is to be set free from the sinfulness that wrecks that relationship. And in Jesus, our great high priest, our perfect high priest, our need for restoration is fully met. And the writer then spells out five reasons why Jesus is all you need and why Jesus meets your every need. These five reasons. He's holy. He's blameless. He's pure. He's set apart. And he's exalted. And I know we could spend a reasonable amount of time reflecting on each of those characteristics of Jesus, but let me encourage you to take one a day from Monday to Friday of this week and just sit with it for 10 minutes, meditating on each of those features of Jesus. Because for me, that's what it means to fix your eyes on Jesus. I mean, these phrases are great. What does that actually mean? Here's one way we can do it. Just take each of those, sit with it for 10 minutes, meditate on it. Jesus is a perfect priest because he's holy and he's blameless and he's pure and he's set apart and he's exalted. And then he's also a perfect sacrifice. You see, under the old system, the old covenant, the Levitical priesthood system, the priests had to, as we've already said, offer sacrifices day in and day out, not just for the sins of the people, but they also had to sacrifice for their own sin because they were flawed, imperfect human beings just like every other. But Jesus offered up himself, it says, as a sacrifice for our sin. He shed his own blood, but not for himself. Why did he not need to shed his blood for himself? Because he was holy, because he was blameless, because he was pure, because he was set apart. 
So he did it all for others. He didn't need to do it for himself. He did it all for others, and he did it once for all. It doesn't need to be repeated. The price is paid in full. Total forgiveness is available. Reconciliation is possible, period. No more blood needs to be shed. His was sufficient for the sin of the world. And so he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so though we, as I say, may make mistakes and we may sin, although we can still fail and disappoint, we have a great high priest who offered himself once for all and now always lives to intercede for us, which is what he is doing right now. So the work of his priesthood continues. So Melchizedek, yeah, he is an A-lister. And so whenever we say key characters in, in, in the big story of Scripture, we always, I believe, need to be thinking of Melchizedek. He's an important player. He's greater than Abram. But you see, when we do think of him or we hear his name, may we recognize, and this is important, verse 3, may we recognize he only resembles Jesus. And his purpose is to get us to realize that Jesus is our greater and our perfect high priest forever. And when we consider him, when we think carefully about Jesus, when we fix our eyes on him, then, which is one of the reasons why the writer writes this book, then we will not drift away. We will not drift back. And so to sum up, Jesus is a king. Jesus is a priest forever. Jesus is a king of righteousness. Jesus is a king of peace. Jesus is a better hope. Jesus draws us near to God. Jesus is holy. Jesus is blameless. Jesus is pure. Jesus is set apart. Jesus is exalted. Jesus is our once and for all sacrifice. And Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Elevate Jesus. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who does what? Whoever lives and pleads for me. We're going to stand and sing this to close, but you see as we're singing this, can you just somehow picture the fact that 